The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce George Naylor. Mr. Naylor is a farmer in Iowa. He has been raising corn and soybeans for more than 35 years. He is also the past president of the National Family Farm Coalition. George, welcome. Yes, well, it's nice to be on your program. Well, I wanted to interview you because we met each other at Farm Aid, and I started asking you questions about the state of farming, and I thought that what you're experiencing really needs to be heard by the eating citizens of this country. There's a story on the web that tells about your father, who was also growing corn, and he got next to nothing for his crop, and yet you decided to go into farming yourself what kept you on the farm? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Well, I left the farm. My dad left the farm, actually, when he was like 55 years old, and uh, so we moved to California. I didn't come back to the farm until I was 27. And, you know, he, he told me one time, he said he wanted me to get a college education, but I ever, if I ever wanted to be a farmer, he would support me because farming was be- was the best occupation in the world. <laughs> so I guess he I guess he uh, prized his independence. I don't really know, but also I think he just loved being uh, dealing with living things, you know, both crops and livestock, which I have I have not dealt with livestock like I actually should have if I'd have had a sustainable crop rotation and things. So you you went out to California. Your father left the farm in Iowa. Yeah. Did he leave for financial reasons? Well, partly. You see. Uh, the New Deal farm programs addressed the, the basic economic problems of farmers. And um, the biggest crisis that farmers had faced for years and years was, of course, was the Great Depression. But the, for, for farmers, that had started in 1920. Prices crashed after World War I. And so all through the 20s, when the rest of society was experiencing the roaring 20s, farmers were in a deep depression. In uh, my own county seat here of Jefferson, Iowa, every bank closed its doors in 1926 because farmers weren't able to pay their bills. So, you see, uh, there was a time in 1933, in the winter of 1933, where my dad hauled grain to town, and uh, he went across the scale and he asked the manager what he was paying for corn that day, and the manager said, well, uh, yesterday we were paying 10 cents a bushel, but today we're not buying Hmm. So, you see, that had been the the norm for farmers for years and years. They never knew what they were going to get for it. And actually, many years in a row, they would be getting very low prices and and basically live in poverty and just barely scrape by if they could. Or many farmers lost their, their land. So, these New Deal farm programs addressed that issue by making sure that farmers were getting a fair price for many years, from 1941 to 1953. But then, because the 
agribusiness wanted its way, and it got its way when the Eisenhower administration came in. Those farm programs were weakened drastically, and and farmers weren't getting a fair price. And so my dad, in 1962, he was facing an economic crisis. He didn't really know what to do, and he had uh, had a background in electronics just as a ham radio operator. So he quit farming, and we moved to California. And then did he sell the farm? No, uh, he he and his brothers and sisters kept the farm, but they rented it to an uncle and aunt you know, on my mom's side of the family. So what pulled you back from California back to Iowa? Well, it's a funny thing. Uh, several things. Uh, for one thing, I was in college at Berkeley, and uh, the the natural food movement had started, and so that raised my awareness of food and how food was produced, I had basically uh, lost track of how things were going on the farm, you know. Yeah. And then uh, I also had an aunt that subscribed to a magazine for me while I was in college. It was uh, Organic Gardening and Farming magazine. <laughs> and so I was reading that late at night. And uh, and the Back to the Land movement started. So uh, by hook or by crook, I ended up back on the farm. And the other thing, you know, you asked me, well, why did I start farming? Well, it was a very similar situation to today in nineteen in the mid-1970s. Farm prices had skyrocketed. Corn had basically tripled in price, and, and soybeans had tripled in price. And Earl Butts, who was Secretary of Agriculture, said that farmers didn't have to worry about prices anymore, and they should go out and plant fence row, fence row. Because the world needs your food, he said, and so that so my my parents and my aunts and uncles thought, well, I guess maybe he can make a living on farming, and they supported me, mm-hmm. and that's that's how I got started farming. So now we're in a very similar situation, but the thing the thing that people don't realize is that this is a um, really an 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 artifact, I guess is the word or whatever of of the, our uh, monetary system, because back then. In the 70s, Nixon had decoupled the dollar from gold, and the Federal Reserve used that to start inflating the economy to help pay for the Vietnam War and to get the government out of its debt crisis. Hmm. And uh, this, and so that's when inflation started. But the the first round of inflation starts with farm prices and with oil and with commodities. So we're experiencing that now. The thing is that eventually, when things get back to normal, quote-unquote, our prices will not show any relationship to what it costs to produce it. And what happens when that, when that happens is that what you see is farmers in, in an economic crisis again. So that I think that's coming down the road. And... Um, it's a terrible thing because farmers end up doing really stupid things to uh, stay in business by exploiting the land more and to try to produce as much as they can now while they can, while they can make money to, so that they'll have some when, uh, when prices crash. Well, George, I should let our listeners know that you were also featured in the film Fresh. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that you, despite what your neighbors were doing, you were not planting genetically modified crops, is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. I will never, ever raise genetically modified crops. Why is that? 
Well, I just think that it's a um, it's dealing with uh, the product of over three billion years of evolution, mm-hmm. and uh, we're just not smart enough. And it, scientists admit they're not smart enough to understand all that goes on with the the chromosomes of, of plants and animals. So when they are um, messing around with that, they're messing around with uh, some pretty important things, and especially because they're unleashing they're unleashing uh, their products into the environment. And unlike a pharmaceutical, when we find out that a, a drug or or a chemical or something is dangerous to our society, we can stop producing it and bring it back. But with uh, these uh, genetically modified crops, those genes are being unleashed, and there's no way of ever bringing them back. Has your crop ever been contaminated? Oh, I'm sure it has been many times. I mean, the, my neighbors around me, of course, raise genetically modified crops, and the pollen from corn drifts for even miles, but easily across my fence row. For corn, I'm not I'm not trying to market. I don't have the opportunity to market my corn as non-GMO corn. But for soybeans, I do. And um, other people, lots of other farmers in the neighborhood who, ha- who have been raising non-GMO beans for a, a special market for Europe, like, like I have, many of them have had their loads rejected when they've hauled them in. And uh, one time I, um, I had planned on raising uh, non-GMO beans for a little company that processed beans for tofu and soy milk. And um, I had my variety all picked out that I was familiar with. And then just before planting, they called me in and said, well, you'll have to pick a different variety because we can't find enough seed of that type that's uh, not contaminated. So I, I had to go in and pick a different variety. And, of course, hell, it turned out to be a disaster. It was not a good variety for my farm. So who bears the responsibility or, or who bears the damages for for that contamination? Well, according so far... Generally, I guess I'm not a lawyer and I'm not familiar with all of the court cases, of course, but it seems like Monsanto and, and uh, DuPont and Dow and all these big companies, um, Syngenta, have been able to avoid being being held responsible for their their damages. Mm. You know, despite the, the fact that they unleash these things, and of course they say, well, geez, the federal government has... Um, has uh, regulated these things and investigated these things and found that there's nothing wrong, you know, but the thing that they're not saying is that they had great political influence on our government to uh, influence the the regulation of these products through the FDA and the EPA and the USDA so that really they're not really regulated. Mm-hmm. As a farmer... As the person who produces the food so that we all can eat, it's really important, I think, for our listeners to understand your perspective on how to fix what is obviously a broken food system. Where would you start? Well, we can take lessons from uh, the farm programs that were put in place during the New Deal. I mean, that's really what's amazing. It isn't like I'm, I can, I need to propose anything that's so abstract and out in left field that nobody could imagine what it would be like. We, we've asked farmers actually farmed under those conditions and, and those farm, those farm programs in the New Deal were the result of what farmers recognized what was needed. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, when farmers lived through the 1920s and, and early 1930s without any farm program, and they saw they either lost their farm or saw their neighbors losing their farm, it wasn't hard to figure out what they needed. And that's actually something that happened many decades before, over and over again, too. So what? Well, what? Just like just like a, a working person needs a minimum wage, a farmer needs a minimum price, and then you have regulations that that encourage conservation and supply management, so that you're not breaking the system by overproducing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, society is protected from food shortages by taking grain, which is a storable commodity which, you know, really that's the basis of civilization, to be able to store grain from year to year and have a surplus. That grain then can be stored in a government reserve so that it can be brought back on the market in case we do have a crop failure. So it's very simple. In that way, you're uh, protecting the farmer, you're conserving the land and water, and you're protecting against uh, food insecurity. So... It's not that hard to understand. Uh, the opposite of that, of course, is this free market system where farmers have really only one choice, and that's to try to produce as much as they can mm-hmm. from year to year. And actually, whether they intentionally do it or just do it unconsciously, they externalize the costs because they're being told, well, society needs your food, the world needs your food, people are starving, go out and produce as much as you can. Well, George, so how does this fit with the subsidy program? As a dietitian, we hear a lot about, you know, well, the reason why we have so much obesity is because we're we're subsidizing corn in particular, and we're making all of this cheap food available. I'd love to know your thoughts about that. Well, we're definitely making cheap food available. Food should cost a lot more, especially any kind of crop like corn and soybeans that exposes the soil to erosion and requires lots of fertilizer and chemicals to produce. We're producing way too much of that. But you, the thing you got to realize is that farmers do that out of the basic economic decisions they would naturally make in a free market situation because if they can't, if, they're, um, if they don't have a market where they're going to be able to sell sustainably produced fruits, vegetables, or grain, um, their, their alternative, or livestock, or sustainably, you know, like grass, grass-fed livestock, their alternative is to exploit the land as, from as much as they can to produce as much to have a lot to sell to make up for the low prices that they're, they are inevitably going to get. Mm-hmm. And that only makes things worse. When all the farmers try to produce as much as they can, for sure, they're going to get low prices, and and but they have no way out of that. Right. So about the subsidy situation, right? Would okay, you? Okay. Let me get, let me. That's the most important thing for everybody to understand, because over and over again, you'll read that it's the subsidies that cause farmers to overproduce, and that's that's just absolutely wrong. The farmers are going to overproduce if they're not given a floor under their farm prices. Mm-hmm. It's just like. Well, you will have a surplus of labor, and, and labor will produce, will offer their labor for next to nothing and, and work themselves to death if they don't get a decent wage. Mm-hmm. So it's the same way with farmers. And the, the thing you've real, got to realize is what, when they destroyed the, the floor under farm prices and, that the New Deal farm programs provided, 
which said that the buyer has to pay a fair price for the product in the first place. When they destroyed those programs, what they did was they let the prices go down, 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 year after year after year, and many times it got so low that it threatened the actual functioning of the farm economy. So what they did then was substitute government payments to the crop farmers, which kept the economy from collapsing, but allowed big feedlots like Cargill or Smithfield to keep buying the cheap grain. Mm. Or Cargill may turn it into uh, corn sweeteners. So while subsidies have played a big role, it's not the cause of cheap prices. It, it was the response of agribusiness to let the taxpayer pick up the tab while they got the cheap grain. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with George Naylor. He is a corn and soybean farmer in the heart of this country. He is based in Iowa, and he was also featured in the movie Fresh. You can see his smiling face there in his cornfield. And he was also the former president of the National Family Farm Coalition for several years. George, getting back to fixing the problem. So giving farmers a fair price for their crop, rewarding them for conservation practices that protect the environment. I also want to talk about your experiences with health care because in surveys that I've seen, the Young Farmer Surveys, the Women in Food and Agriculture Network, in my own interviews with farmers, what I hear repeatedly is that having access to health care or not having access to health care makes farming almost impossible Tell me your experiences and, and those of your neighbors. Right. Well, farmers are in a situation where they have to provide their own health insurance. You know, there's no government program where you get to buy a, fair, a reasonable health insurance policy and you know that it's going to be a reasonably priced. So back in the 1990s, my family, I had two, two young sons. My wife and I uh, were struggling because... The price of, of commodities was just unbelievably low in the 1990s. And yet we would get a letter in the mail, like, you know, every month or two, saying that our, the, the cost of our health insurance was going up. And it reached the point where it was a $1,000 a month. And it, at that point, there was no way we were going to be able to afford health insurance without my wife going to work in town. So even though we had two two young sons, you know, I'm not sure that they had even gotten in grade school yet, but there was no other choice, so she had to go get a job. And so there goes a lot of your plans for, you know, teamwork on the farm and doing alternative things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that then, when you have somebody working off the farm, when you lose that teamwork, you, you lose a whole lot that makes, that takes the, and it takes the romance right out of farming, let me tell you. Yeah, I often wonder too if, this removal of one of the partners from the farm leaves the remaining partner with a heck of a lot more work making those illusions of easy products you know the just spray one time with this with this herbicide mm-hmm. and all your weeds will be gone it doesn't that become then more appealing because you're even strapped yeah. more so on the farm oh sure yeah yeah, like I say, you lost the teamwork of it, that, that an alternative, uh, more labor-intensive, more management-intensive type of system would require. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so basically you're just trying to, you're, you're doing it all by yourself after that. And then there's there's a certain amount of resentment. It's ironic maybe. Yeah, the farmer that stays, that has to stay on the land and do all the working 
on the, all the work, the farm work, you know, it seemed like maybe their workload went up, but actually then the person that has to go to get up every morning and go to work in town, they start resenting the fact that the farmer isn't actually, you know, doesn't, you know, they're still their own boss and, and, uh, they don't have to actually get up every morning really early, but, and the, uh, you know, they're a little bit more in control of their life. So that, that creates a lot of tension too. Right. So how old are your sons now? Uh, they're 20 and 18. And what, did they want to work on the farm? Well, it's, uh, no, I tell you, our family broke up a lot of, partly for, because of the, you know, that, that tension, that economic tension. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I think they missed out on a lot of that and that jo- uh, joy of, of farming, but uh, there's still a certain amount of mystique involved because, uh, well, my oldest son, when he went to college, he says, "Okay, when I get out of college, I want you to teach me about farming." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, okay, it was better late than never. And then, oh, my younger son, he always is that you know inquisitive about it, and he tells me I ought to get a cow so I can milk milk it and give him some good milk. So, George, are you glad that you went back to the farm? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I'd be happy. Uh, I wonder what I would be doing otherwise. I tried teaching school for a while, but um, no, yeah, I, I definitely am. I, I think I, the that that love of the land, that love of things growing and the, and the, the experimental aspect of farming, um, is, is something that really appeals to me, and 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 besides, I, I guess when I when I left college, when I left Berkeley, I felt like well, I, I had learned that material things weren't the most important thing in, in life, and so if I didn't make a huge living, that really wasn't important anyway, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah. I was kind of a hippie, uh, <laughs> anyway. So the lack of income hasn't personally hasn't been the biggest factor, disapp- biggest disappointment. But where that comes in is, is what it's what that has caused for the whole system of agriculture and what that, what that has caused to my own community. Right. So if you were to be left in charge, and you were to make some changes in in the farm bill coming up, you know, I, I think that by hearing the farmer's voice, maybe uh, those of us who eat the food that you produce can help join forces with you to speak for the policies that would make your life better and make farmers' lives better. So in addition to having some sort of price, a fair price that you would get for your food, what else would you like to see change in the 2012 Farm Bill? Well, we we need leadership from a Secretary of Agriculture that would would tell the American people the truth and say, you know, it, it might seem good to be able to go into a big, huge, grocery store and buy all kinds of food really cheap and all that but actually there's a huge cost to you in doing that in terms of the opportunities that you have for your life for your children's life where they're going to make a living and how the natural world is being treated to the point where down the road it it may really uh, come back to haunt us so that what we need to do, we need to use the, the changes in agriculture that we know are good for us to make our whole society make sense for everybody so that there's economic opportunity out in the countryside. Our land and water is being treated right. We're not destroying biodiversity. 
And so it would take a whole new mindset, and it would be a total rejection of agribusiness craziness in terms of how we raise crops and how we raise livestock. So that, and, and you know, not to mention the nutrition that's involved and 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 the kind of exercise that we need to get. Mm-hmm. So it takes a whole new mindset to get to the point where we're actually changing the farm bill in the correct way. And unfortunately, that's not the kind of leadership or vision that we have from Washington, D.C., from Secretary Vilsack or from President Obama or any of the other people that are running for president at this time. Sometimes I wonder if... If we go, there's an expression in public health where, you know, you've got a problem downriver, you have to go upriver as far as you can to find out the cause of the problem. And I wonder sometimes if the cause of the problem is that we really need campaign finance reform so that the agribusinesses and the corporations aren't really pulling the strings of those in office. And I wonder, is that going far enough up the river for you? Where do you see the change needing to happen so that we have a true democracy again? Right. Well, undoubtedly, uh, the abuse of, of campaign financing and lobbying is, is that's that's fundamental. But you know, we the people actually have to get things straight in terms of how our relationship to Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. We're so far from understanding that because we fall for the the ploy time and time again that cheaper is better. So cheaper food would be better, cheaper gas would be better. And then also when they, when they say, oh, well, if we reform things this way, then we're going to help poor people or we're going to put, we're going to create jobs or they, we're going to feed starving people overseas and all that. We fall for all those big lies, uh, instead of having a to- total understanding that we need to create the society that will mean that we're in harmony with Mother Nature and that we're treating each other like our, our own fellow human, human beings. We just have two minutes, and I, this probably isn't a fair question, but uh, your thoughts on ethanol, corn-based yeah, ethanol? No, it's a totally fair question. Uh, creating ethanol, as we do today, has, is a byproduct of a, a system that doesn't price agricultural products like they should be. If corn was priced where it should be, it would be $20 a bushel instead of $6 a bushel, and when you think back, when I first started farming and got involved in farm politics, the price of corn was less than $2 a bushel. That's a perfect example of, of how we're not pricing our, our uh, raw materials properly mm-hmm. and don't have a system to, to do that, which is based on conserving our, our uh, resources, conserving our biodiversity in the first place. That's where we have to start. Mm-hmm. We have one minute. Do you want to leave our listeners with a charge, a mission, something to do, yeah, sure. an yes, action step? Yes, I, I would say uh, they should go read Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma and try to understand how a good farm program worked in the New Deal and, and demand that that's the kind of farm program that comes up this time around. Thank you, George. I really appreciate your time, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. We've been speaking with George Naylor, an experienced corn and soybean farmer based in the heartland in Iowa, and I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
Thank you so much, George. And I want to also give our listeners the website for the National Family Farm Coalition. That's www.nffc.net to learn more about good farming that supports rural communities and farm families. George, thanks again for all of your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you.